Welcome back to the program. It seems that every day the world speeds up. The advance of technology, the need to make faster decisions, multitasking, and a sometimes dizzying array of options are all part of the creative destruction that is making the world a more efficient and many ways a better and freer place. But on the other hand, human evolution is a slow, deliberate process. So to what extent have our brain's evolutionary ability kept pace with 21st century life? To what extent is this true cognitive dissidence acting as a kind of governor on our ability to do our best in the modern world? And in turn, what impact is it having on how we treat each other and how we treat the world around us? These are some of the ideas explored by my guest, Dr. Peter Wybro, in his new book, The Well-Tuned Brain. Dr. Peter Wybro is director of the Jane and Terry Semmel Institute for Neuroscience and Human Behavior at UCLA. He's the Judson Braun Distinguished Professor and Executive chair of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Science at the David Geffen School of Medicine. He's the author of previous books, including A Mood Apart and the award-winning American Mania. It is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Peter Wybro back to this program to talk about the well-tuned brain, neuroscience, and the life well-lived. Dr. Wybro, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for the invitation again. That's wonderful to speak with you again. My pleasure. Is there a fundamental disconnect between the speed that the world is moving today, the reality that we're all living in, partly as a result of technology and, and a whole host of other changes that have taken place, and the brain's ability to process information and our ability to look at the world consistent with what's happening around us? Yes, I think there is. I mean, one of the advantages that we have in the last couple of decades is that we've begun to really understand who we are and within that context to begin to understand perhaps how we might be organizing life a little differently. How does all of this impact the way we see ourselves? What, what are you finding? What, what does research show in terms of the way our own self-image is changing as a result of all this going on around us? Well, you know, the human brain is not, uh, it's a hybrid. It's not, it's not a single organ, basically. There's Part of it is, is very ancient, and then the piece that makes us human, the capacity for imagination and forward planning, executive decision-making, that area which is tied to the frontal lobes of the brain is quite recent, probably no more than 200,000, perhaps even 50 or 60,000 years old, that capacity for imagination. So we're very distinct from the other animals, but we carry around with us exactly the same apparatus when it comes to the basic fundamental management of day-to-day -day activity. So, unfortunately, we're rather uh, self-centered. We're short-term in our vision of the world, and uh, we are habit-driven. And these, if you take those things apart, it's not quite so bad as it sounds, but obviously they're tied to our early survival uh, in the in, in complex environments that we no longer have. We have a complex environment, but it's not the same as it was. So the habits are an efficient way of managing the world. You don't have to pay attention to every detail, otherwise we'd never get anything done. But the self-interest, which is the emotional part of the brain, is actually now tweaked by our dominant market culture, because that's, of course, how we drive the linear progression of our uh, economy. So you put those two things together, 
and at the same time diminish the social interaction, which used to be the breaking system on self-interest. We used to call it character. You know, um, those two things together mean that the the old brain is in the saddle and roaring away like a runaway train to mix the metaphors and I think that um, that is what gets us into trouble that's why almost without knowing it we become a frenzied nation in many ways those habits are geared as you talk about it for survival and really short-term thinking and many of the decisions that we have to make today many of the realities of this speeded up culture require a longer view which is not what we're doing I think that's right. You see, the the books that I've written previously, this is sort of the third of a trilogy, describe how emotion and the um, cognitive aspects of brain work. And I, the first book, A Mood Apart, was really how that goes wrong and how you can see it going wrong in depression and mania. The second one analyzed the culture that we live in now, which is the frenzy we just spoke about. And this book focuses particularly upon how it is that when we know ourselves, we can do something better. So if we undertake uh, a self-analysis and we say, yes, indeed, we are just what we described, self-centered, short-term, habit-driven, then what does that mean in terms of the way in which we should be structuring our environment and the social order which we develop? And we know we know a great deal about ourselves, but we've forgotten. And so... The book tries to put the two things together and says, look, if we do this properly, we should be optimistic about our future. At the moment, what we're doing is allowing our behavior to not only drive us towards illness, but also to, to damage the ecology, which is absolutely essential to our survival. One of the key habits that are not in, in really the ascendancy in this that you talk about is this sense of empathy, that we care for each other, that we have compassion, and that seems to be getting lost in all of this. It does, I think. The way in which that works, in my mind at least, is that empathy is something which we have innately within us, but it has to be tuned. It has to be, which is where the idea comes from for the title of the book. But without thoughtful engagement with other people, then we have the problem where we do not learn empathic understanding. Empathic's concern is very different from sympathy. You know, I can be sympathetic to the fact that you might have an illness, but putting myself in your shoes and understanding what it really is like to suffer that disorder is a very different position. And we've known that human beings have that capacity. It's tied back to our extraordinary ability for imagination. Adam Smith, the patron saint of, of American capitalism writing in the 18th century, said this, imagine my brother on the rack. I can't imagine uh, it except to put myself in his place, he said. And so thinking about that, we have to ask, how do we do that these days? What are the institutions that enable us to learn that empathic understanding? It starts, of course, in the, in the bond between parent and child, and that develops trust, and trust in that instance enables the child to begin to search out for themselves the real way in which the world works. But without that trust, it's a very scary thing to grow up. And amazingly, 
we don't, you know, although we understand all this intellectually, we don't change it into our social policy. It might surprise you that America is one of the only countries, I think there are two of us, of the developed countries in the world, that do not have the capacity through legislation for parents to actually spend time with their children in the first few months of life and, and return to a job so they can be secure in knowing that their family will be fed when they go back after three to six months of caring for the child. Everybody else seems to know that if you invest there in the long run, you end up with far less psychopathology in the children and in the society because after all, society and culture is just a collection of individuals, yes? It's how we respond and relate to each other that drives the way in which the, the society functions. And I think you see that, uh, without rambling on here, I think you see that in some of our institutions now. Why is it that the Congress can't talk to each other? Why is it that we're so polar in our vision of the world, etc., uh, etc.? Et so that particular nidus of caring, trusting, and building character early in life enters into the school system as well is absolutely fundamental to uh, a uh, stable, balanced social order. How much of this comes from, and I know you spent a lot of time talking about this in, in the well-tuned brain, how much of this comes from economics? And again, coming back to Adam Smith, trying to understand the importance of moral obligation the way he talked about it. Yes, I mean, he, the interesting thing about Adam Smith is everybody feels he was an economist, but in fact he wrote two books. The first one was called The Moral Sentiments, and basically uh, he, he, um, uh, he described there what a modern psychologist might describe, which is the building of character. And so in, if you s distill his concept down, the, um, which is really the basis of modern market philosophy, on one side, if you imagine it as a apothecary's balance, you know, on one side you've got the driving force of the market, which is self-interest, social ambition, and curiosity. And then on the other side, you have what he believed was the constraining variable. You know, everybody in the 18th century knew that human beings were self-centered and they were going to run away to greed. And they were worried that when the church disappeared, that that indeed would happen. And so Smith said, no, we'll be able to regulate ourselves because we're all concerned for each other. And so what he said was that social sentiment is the break upon the, upon the market society. In the book, I describe this in some detail. And it, it helps us understand how, with modern technologies and the way in which everything is now instant, where distance and time and, and, and um, uh, the, you know, the, the rigors of uh, winter and summer have tended to diminish, we can work 24 hours a day. The social constraints, especially as we no longer invest in the sorts of things we were talking about just a few minutes ago, they tend to drive the system in the direction of being just the engine, uh, the powerful engine that, that makes the market work, rather than having anything that breaks the market. And you can see this in our, in our bubble system. I wrote in, uh, in the Wall Street Journal just a week ago about how we have enormous debt, and it's largely because, as you mentioned earlier, Jeff, the, we no longer plan, we no longer think, well, 
if I assume this debt today, I'm going to have to pay it off sometime. It just doesn't occur to us. Can we find in the mechanisms that are creating this speed up, that are the mechanisms that are causing this change, inherent in those, can we find some of the answers to beginning to, to shift this trend we've been talking about? I believe so. I believe that uh, we can do it too in America, particularly because we are extraordinarily rich and we need to translate some of what we know about ourselves into social policy, as I mentioned earlier. One way of doing that is to begin to invest heavily in understanding what it is that makes the early experience of, of child and family uh, constructive in the character building way you know there's the old story about be careful of your habits because they will build your character and your character will build your life basically and so and there's a lot of truth in that so if we go back and we ask let's forget the technology and the science for a moment and just go back and think about some of the fundamental human truths which you find in various religious doctrines and other social aspects of living together and you find that many of these answers lie there it's just that we now need to think about how we put them into true action so the second part of the book is based first upon a discussion of love and how that is the fundamental bond that brings us together the trust the educational programs and how from educational program each of us learn self-command and then how does that translate into the building of cities? How is it that we should be constructing our habitat? How is it that food works together in bonding us? Because it, it really does. You know, food is still, even though we have industrial farming these days, it still is the, the, the glue that keeps us together in the, in the cities. It's amazing how we manage to support so many millions of people uh, and, and knowing how that happens and how it can happen in a constructive way so that people no longer are eating the sorts of food that make them extraordinarily obese. That is a very important social function because then we will not have the economic burden of too many people becoming ill. So you put all that together and then you seed it with the imagination human beings have an amazing imagination and are extraordinarily creative. I mean, just you and I, as we're talking here, we are putting together these sounds in a way that you and I understand each other, and they are completely unique, these sentences we're creating. So we're all creative people. It's not just somebody who sits at the edge and calls themselves Einstein. They're, they're, everybody is creative to some degree. If you put that together, all that stuff together, we had this ancient idea that we called it wisdom, that we know how to live. And so I believe optimistically that we can get back to that. We just have to do it in a way that enables the social order to be corrected and no longer uh, exploiting the planet we're living on. And everybody says, oh, excuse me just a moment, that's final point is everybody says, well, how does that happen? Well, it doesn't happen by some major civil uh, revolution it happens individually and if each of us is able to do make these steps then they, they eventually these islands of change coalesce and you do have a social movement 
How do we make that link between the familial bonds that you were talking about before, the trust that's inherent in that, at, at its core, something like the parent-child bond, and look at it in a larger global framework today where we're looking at, at a global family that is deeply interconnected? Can we make that leap from, from the core to the much larger familial framework on a, on a global level? That's very challenging. But, for example, take um, climate change. One can argue till the cows come home about whether climate change is induced by human activity. I think uh, there's no real answer to that. But what there is an answer for is that we are making it worse. There's no doubt that in the past, you know, the... Yeah, the world has been a lot warmer than it is today, but we, if we want human uh, experience to be much as it has been for the last 10,000 years in the Holocene, we don't want to get it too much warmer. So that is something that we can do internationally, but it's very difficult to bring people together, I think because they do not have these fundamental principles that we're talking about. Now, human, it's very much more easily achieved if you have a set of principles that guide you in changing your behavior. And so I think that the answer to your question is, yes, we can do this, but you have to have individual nations do it first. You have to have individual states do it first. You have to have individuals do it first. And America, because of its constitution and its organization, we have that. California can, for example, lead the way in certain elements of, of climate change and social order, and that then becomes something which other states will follow. Look at gay marriage, for example, which, you know, again, one can debate the issue, but the, there's no doubt that fundamentally that says individuals should be allowed to attach to each other and to care for each other in the way that is egocentric to them, not to what we believe top-down to be the preferred social order. And that brings together a much stronger bond and organization. So if you think about that same principle in America, we have the fundamental way in which we can achieve that uh, by, uh, by, I think, uh, just putting in place some of the things that we hold most dear. Our individual rights then become an issue of social rights. And, and then once we've got it right here, others will follow us. They follow us now, but they're following us mainly in things that are not necessarily constructive to a stronger social order. In trying to understand these fundamental principles, do we also need to look at or re-examine education and not take anything away necessarily from our focus on things like science and technology and engineering, but at the same time not lose sight of philosophy, of liberal arts, of ideas that, that really inculcate those principles? I believe that, and also I would go further. I, I would say that, in fact, it may be your own experience too. If I look back, and I talk a little bit about the book in, in the book about this, if I look back upon the teachers of when I was young or when I was in my adolescence, I remember the people who influenced me enormously, but I don't remember what they taught me specific. I mean, I remember it was physics, but I couldn't tell you all the details of the theories that they put forth. So what that tells us is that in education, we may, be, we may have it upside down. I mean, America is driven by this idea of metrics that we have to be, we're 27th, I think it is at the moment, or somewhere around there in, 
in language and in mathematics and so on. And we worry about that, understandably, because we should. But the issue is not so much the content, but creating something which enables the student to attach to the, to the teacher. And this goes back to that fundamental paradigm of parent and child. We talk very little about this in our educational system. We're constantly reshuffling the deck in terms of how much people should uh, be tested, etc. Look at Finland, which it always is a small country, but it, it manages to sit somewhere in the top five around the world with all the various measurements that are taken. What they do there is they get the smartest kids in, in the universities. It's very difficult to become a teacher in Finland. The top 10% become teachers. They get well paid. They're taught how the, the pedagogy, and they're taught how to do these things, and then the state gets out of their way. They, they just let them teach these children, and they do so much better. In fact, the children don't start school, as I recall, until about six or seven, much later than we do. Formal school, I'm talking about. So it, attachment is the nidus throughout all human experience. That's the glue again. So when we're talking about education, we need have that attachment with student and and, uh, uh, and and the institution. That, of course, is totally damaged by poor economic circumstance, among other things. And so we've got a lot of work to do there, but if we could put it back together, the thing would correct itself once we begin to build these uh, individual opportunities. I talk a lot about that in, in a chapter on uh, what I call... Uh, self-command, education and self-command, because ultimately that's what it is. You can't regulate 300 million people by law. You have to enable them to live within those laws by their own personal self-understanding, something that, um, uh, again, Smith called the impartial spectator. In other words, we regulate ourselves by recognizing uh, the moral code within which we live. And that, again, is what was called character. So we, it's almost as if now we know enough about the way the brain works, we can go back and say, you know, those guys were right back there. We could, we could, if we could just apply these principles, because we now know they're very sound, we can build a better society. So the book is a very optimistic book. On, on a pessimistic note for a moment, is there the danger, do you see the potential danger, that we continue in the direction we're going and we keep speeding up the process in a way that leads to essentially a crash of the whole system? Uh, yes, that's a possibility. I mean, we've had certain experiences like that of late, have we not? If you take just the the um, uh, the subtext mm -hmm. of uh, the finance industry in 2008 or seven and eight, that's exactly what happened. I mean, we we began to take off the constraints. Individuals within the system were rewarded for uh, their own entrepreneurial personal benefits. Uh, the stock, it was all rationalized by saying it, the, the, the individuals who owned the stock were the sole persons who should benefit from the company as opposed to the old idea that companies somehow had a public good attached to them. And in this instance, it ran away to greed until such times as the whole thing collapsed. I think you can see that beginning to happen potentially in the way in which um, the weather is changing. I think we can see that in the way in which 
the uh, credit systems are working for individuals. We now owe, believe it or not, as private individuals, this has got nothing to do with government debt, $11 trillion. It takes a long time to pay off $11 trillion. Will the thing that ultimately saves us or protects us come back to something we talked about at the very beginning of this conversation, and that is that inherent instinct for survival? Will that win out in a positive way? Yes, it will, if we stand back far enough to ask ourselves, what does survival really mean? Because it is no longer beating the guy next to you to the, uh, to the parking space or creating an opportunity to get richer than your neighbor. It's really how do we collaboratively work together to do the things that we have to do. So we have to move away from our predilection for short-term vision, short-term planning, and move into a longer-term um, uh, vision of what it is we're trying to achieve. So we've got to actually consciously, our reason has to begin to think, passion is wonderful. We love passion. We all, we're not trying to put everybody uh, into some sort of uh, refrigerator and just keep them there like that. We, we want to have a good time in life. Why not? But we need to be able to see down the road. So you know, one of the examples is I give a little story. The book is full of stories, but there's a local restaurant near where I live here in L.A., and um, they have the most wonderful food, and also they, the cook loves to produce these large uh, chocolate cakes and things at the end of this. So uh, you have this, you're full, and then suddenly he wants you to try out his late, latest caramel pudding. And, you know, the, all the good, good thoughts about, well, I'd rather keep my weight where it is because otherwise I don't feel so well, go out of the window for those few minutes and suddenly you eat the damn thing. And that's short-term planning because it completely overtakes the long-term understanding of what you're trying to achieve. You put that together and take it into the paradigm of so, the social order and that's what we're doing every day because we've built a culture, a market culture, which thrives on the short term. You know, if I don't go out and line up for my new iPod, I am considering myself to be a laggard. I'm not <laughs> at the social edge, yes. But in doing that, it's short term. It's not long term planning. And so, but, but the... But we've built a culture which says you have to keep buying things. You have to... Be, I think it, the famous words of uh, of President Bush when after the uh, the catastrophe um, uh, uh, in New York, uh, he suggested when everything shut down that we should all go out shopping. The idea is get back and buy things. You know, 70% of our economy is, is based on consumption. Well, that's all well and good, but we're chewing through an enormous amount of of stuff based upon that, and most of it ends up in your garage. Indeed. Dr. Peter Wybro, the book is The Well-Tuned Brain, Neuroscience, and the Life Well-Lived. I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Well, it's a pleasure as always, and thank you for your program. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.